0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison program in American ideals and institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, as part of our free speech series, I am so excited to introduce a great friend of the Madison program, Nadine Strawson. Nadine is a New York Law School professor emerita, and she was president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008. She's now a senior fellow with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression and is a leading expert and frequent speaker and media commentator on constitutional law and civil liberties. She's testified before Congress on multiple occasions, and the National Law Journal has named her one of America's 100 most influential lawyers. She's the author of many books, but two recently, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, and, as of October, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. She's also the host and project consultant for Free to Speak, which is a three-hour documentary film series that came out in October. It's linked in the show notes, and I would highly recommend it. It's one of the things that I watched preparing for this interview, and it's really, really well done. So with no further ado, I really hope you enjoy. Nadine, welcome to the show. It's such a joy and an honor to have you on.
1: Well, it's a joy and honor for me to be on your important show, Anna. Thank you.
0: Well, so you've dedicated, I mean, really dedicated your career to out of the entire Bill of Rights, even out of the First Amendment, this one Mm -hmm. little half sentence in the First (laughs) Amendment. (laughs) And so I'm wondering, what to you um, made this issue such an important issue that you want to dedicate your life to it and that you think should be so central that people really need to focus on it?
1: really important question, Annika. And in one sense, I have dedicated my professional career to civil liberties and human rights as the longtime president of the ACLU for 18 years and still very involved on the National Advisory Council of the ACLU, the ACLU's agenda was defending all fundamental freedoms for all people. I have also been very involved in international human rights, and uh, including having served on the board of directors and executive committee of Human Rights Watch, which is the major US-based international human rights organization. And that organization's mission also is to defend all fundamental human rights for all human beings everywhere. I'm still completely committed to those very broad Mm -hmm. agendas. And I'm not going (laughs) to say but, I'm going to say and, I remain convinced that the most essential prerequisite for defending and advancing any other human right or any other civil liberties or, for that matter, any other cause Um, at all is freedom of speech. Without the most robust freedom of speech, we are never going to be able to promote any other civil liberties uh, or any other human rights. Conversely, censorship is the greatest enemy and the greatest impediment to every other civil liberty and every other human right.
0: Well, so talk me through that a little bit. You describe free speech as kind of the foundation. What about it does every other human right and every other civil liberty hinge on?
1: Human rights and civil liberties, by definition, are of special concern, if not indeed unique concern, to members of minority groups and dissident individuals. People who lack access to majoritarian power, either because their ideas, their perspectives are in the minority, or because as a matter of identity, racial, religious, ethnic, and so forth, they are members of minorities. By definition, therefore, um, even in democratic republics, the elected officials are by design responsive to majoritarian groups, the uh, those who wield majority power among their constituency. And the reason why individual rights are enshrined, both in the Bill of Rights in the US Constitution and in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the international level, is precisely to protect majorities, even democratically elected majorities, from trampling on the rights of minorities. And so by definition, um, the agenda of promoting other human rights, including equal rights, including religious liberty, including due process, including privacy, uh, really depends on advocacy. And that means exercising freedom of speech, um, freedom of association, freedom of the press, the right to assembly, the right to petition the government. I will quibble with you. I'll put on my com-law professor hat <laughs> quibble with you in one regard, which is that Um, Other clauses in the First Amendment and its Mm. counterpart in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are also very important. Uh, And I've referred expressly to freedom of the press and assembly and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances, all of which are expressly set out in the First Amendment. Freedom of association. Yeah. Like, with other important rights associated with free speech, no pun intended, <laughs> is not expressly laid out in the First Amendment, but the Supreme Court has said it is implicit and of special concern to the wonderful work that the Madison Project does. Academic freedom is not expressly laid out in the mm. First Amendment. Uh, Nor, for that matter, is freedom of thought, freedom of belief, freedom of conscience. So in some ways, the free speech clause, I think even if the uh, First Amendment had only included a free speech clause, the Supreme Court correctly would have said all these other cognate rights are implicit in that concept. The concept could not meaningfully exist without protecting these associated integrally related rights.
0: So I want to ask you, and uh, for the listeners, you have an absolutely excellent documentary that's just come out, which is going to be linked in the show notes. Um, But one of the things I really loved about your documentary is I think it's so easy to get really bogged down in kind of the technical language on this. And you brought in so many kind of really poignant and contemporary examples of areas where free speech is or historically has been under attack. So I'd like to ask you about some of those, and I'm going to kind of start big and narrow down as we go along here. Um, but you gave some really interesting examples of dictatorships. I mean, people jump right to North Korea. We, you also talk about China, which is a huge geopolitical um, issue for America right now. Um, and the way that those dictatorships suppress free speech and, you know, kind of the methods by which they do so. Um, I think a lot of people are you know, hear examples like that. And they're like, oh, well, you know, this is North Korea. You know, we don't live in North Korea. Surely we're not, you know, the same things that could happen there could simply never happen here. You know, what does that have to do with us? So can you talk to me a little bit about some of those examples of how dictatorships work against free speech and if there's some way in which those are a warning sign for us?
1: Yes, um, very important question, Annika. And one of the things that I really loved about this three part documentary film series, which covered dozens of different countries, countries every single continent except Antarctica, (laughs) Um, and and, uh, it covered speakers of every different identity along every possible vector, including politics, religion, age, race, ethnicity, you name it, um, and covered different topics and different periods of history. And to me, the overarching theme that came through is, number one, the universal human desire. Desire and need for free speech, both as a means of individual self expression, forming one's own identity, exploring and developing one's own identity and beliefs. And then, second, as a way of communicating that identity those beliefs um to a larger world communicating and sharing ideas and debating ideas and advocating for ideas and for causes and for pursuing truth so you know showing both the Um, integral value of of free speech that, you know, it's even if we are not communicating with somebody else, it's so the intrinsic value for each of us as an individual. Uh, and secondly, the instrumental value, and despite all of the differences in political systems, I think the, the common themes really dwarf the, the uncommon, the ones that, we, that that separate us. So, for example, North Korea, which in many ways is the antithesis of the United States, where you have the most oppressive, certainly one of the most oppressive and closed societies in the entire world, Uh, One of the points that was made there was that the government literally has outlawed and eliminated Mm. from vocabulary words that Mm. are associated with concepts that are deemed to be dangerous. So there isn't even and the the, the featured um, person who had lived in North Korea and escaped with her family to the United States is a young woman who explained that when she was growing up in North Korea, they had no concept of human rights mm. or free speech. They just had no idea what it meant. Um, and, and they believed that they were living in a paradise mm. because even though they knew that they were hungry and um, and deprived in, in many other ways, but... You know, on some level, they knew it, but they had no way to articulate it. So they couldn't really experience and understand it. Most shockingly to me, she said they didn't have a word for love. And she never heard her parents express love for each other or for the children. I guess because to have individual bonds um, was potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. Your first loyalty has to be the government. Given all of that, how her parents got the idea that they should escape, I find unfathomable and, and accept as a testament to this innate human desire. You're deprived of the vocabulary. You're deprived of the opportunity. You're brainwashed to believe you're living in paradise. And yet somehow you still have this aspiration for something better. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United States, of course, does not have a government that directly outlaws certain expression on Moss That said, we have many individual laws, uh, including legislation at the state level and executive orders that are outlawing certain books, right, and certain ideas. Uh, in curricula and in public libraries and in school libraries. Mm. We have many laws that have um, outlawed the teaching in K through 12, and in some states even at the higher education level, um, outlawing the teaching of so-called divisive concepts or concepts that make people uncomfortable, or even have expressly banned the teaching of so-called critical race theory, a very ambiguous and and overbroad and vague concept, or have outlawed the teaching of the 1619 Project. So I would say, you know, if you're talking about a spectrum of oppression and outlawing concepts and words. You know, the United States is at the much freer end of the spectrum, but it's part of the same spectrum. And I would add to that, in addition to outright government censorship, which these laws illustrate, we have a very serious problem of what is usually called cancel culture. Yeah, there's right. a lot of disagreement about what it means, but I think the core concept, and there's very uh, widespread support for acknowledging the existence of this core concept, is when we have social pressure Exerted through individuals who are acting in a private capacity, so it's not government censorship, but ranging from Twitter mobs to social media platforms to Powerful employers exerting their social and economic and professional pressure to mete out disproportionately harsh punishment mm. to people who say things, you know, use the wrong word, quote unquote, or express an idea that is. Controversial or deemed to be insensitive or offensive, not only disproportionately harshly punishing the particular individual, but frightening other people who then become intimidated and don't dare discuss those topics. So we have no law that bans the discussion of abortion. Although that said, uh, there actually was at least one directive that was issued. Uh, somewhere out west, I believe it was Montana, but uh, please don't hold me to that, uh, in which uh, a government, I think it was the state attorney general, in response to one of these pieces of state legislation after the Supreme Court decision, strike overturning Roe v. Wade came out, um, said that uh, it would violate university-wide, statewide university policy, for professors to discuss abortion. And I think that was subsequently retracted. But uh, so I think there, there, there are not very many, if any, laws that where government is banning the discussion of abortion. And yet an extremely detailed survey, probably the most detailed survey that's ever been done of college students' attitudes toward free speech was conducted and released recently by FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and College Pulse uh, about a month ago. And uh, based on surveys of 248 higher education institutions, they asked the students, Do you, is it possible on your campus to have a candid and frank discussion about abortion And more than 40% said no, Mm. more than 40% across the board. And a number of other really important topics were listed in which again, more than 40% said we cannot have a candid and frank discussion on our campuses. And the topics included uh, gun control, immigration, police practices, anything to do with race, anything to do with gender and uh, gender identity, and so forth. So we have a kind of soft censorship, mm-hmm. if you will, that we the members of a democratic society are imposing on uh, each other and on ourselves.
0: Yeah, and I'm so happy that you brought up that example of the way language is, is curtailed, like not not expression, but actually individual words are curtailed in North Korea, because that was something that really stuck with me from the, uh, from the documentary. Uh, I was a linguistics major, and so I know that, like, It Actually, there are studies that show that the vocabulary that you have does affect the way you think, even down to details. Like there are different words for colors in different languages. Yes. If your language doesn't have a word for a particular color, you'll perceive that color
1: differently. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, you, of course, know, and this is uh, stressed in the film, that in George Orwell's dystopia in 1984. So, again, he was writing in the U.K., and he was very much concerned about societies way beyond those that are, you know, expressly oppressive dictatorships, and what could happen in a democracy. There was a language called Newspeak, which consisted of um, a reduced vocabulary. Words were eliminated specifically and designedly to eliminate the ideas that were associated with the words in the United States. Yeah. There are certain words that may not be said, no matter what the intent, no matter what the context, no matter what the impact. And in fact, there are a couple words where a law professor has been fired even for using the euphemized version of the word. So I'm not going to risk my career (laughs) Seriously, I mean... Yeah, even yeah. Using the, the, the euphemized version of it. Um, there was another example also of a law professor where he used a Chinese word mm-hmm. that sounded like the banned racist epithet. And everybody acknowledged that it was a completely different word and a completely different language that had a completely different meaning. But he was still suspended wow. and banned from teaching because of it. So we shouldn't have this high and mighty attitude that, oh, that could never happen here. Yeah. I mean, and I wonder what you think
0: the link is between, I mean, we started off talking about the First Amendment, but so many of these examples are kind of interpersonal. You know, it's hard to say, you know, when people know that there are going to be social consequences and therefore they self-censor. I mean, how do you think about how to create that environment when just because something is allowed by the federal government doesn't necessarily mean that people will actually feel empowered to exercise their free
1: speech. That's a very important theme that I stress in, at every opportunity. So thank you, thank you for giving me an opportunity. Uh, freedom of speech under the First Amendment, which protects us against government, Right. Uh, uh, illegal government restriction of speech. Again, some government restriction is appropriate, but um, uh, some is not. Um, and I think I haven't yet made that point in this interview. So if I may take a yeah. point to make it, Please. because part of the reason why there is much more hostility toward free speech than there should be is people who attack freedom of speech under the First Amendment, uh, you often have an exaggerated view of it. Mm. Uh, They say, oh, you know, the First Amendment and you free speech... Absolutists, that's not a complimentary term, <laughs> who defend it, you know, are ridiculously extreme. You mm. think that there should be no exceptions whatsoever to free speech, that government should never be allowed to punish any speech, and you even deny that speech does no harm. And you're completely exceptionalist. You know, America is alone in the world in advocating these uh, extreme positions. None of that is true. Uh, Our First Amendment law, which, by the way, overlaps substantially with international free speech law under United Nations treaties, which have been ratified by virtually every country in the world, um, sensibly does allow government to restrict speech that is the most dangerous. Often, uh, this principle is often referred to as the emergency standard. If speech directly and imminently causes or threatens certain specific serious harm, government can and should restrict it. Beyond that, though, government may not restrict speech solely because it disapproves of the idea or the message of the speech or because there's a, a more vague fear that it might perhaps at some time in the future indirectly contribute to harm. That simply gives government too much license, which it will predictably use to suppress unpopular speakers and ideas, as I alluded to earlier. So um, outlawing um, the censorship that is now unconstitutional is necessary but not sufficient for having meaningful freedom of speech. The legal protection is the starting point, but not the ending point, because as you and I have both acknowledged, private sector entities that have their own free speech rights to say things that will, and to advocate for policies that will restrict other people's speech, you know, not only are they not barred by the First Amendment, the First Amendment empowers them. The yeah. First Amendment gives social media platforms uh, the right, the editorial power to deplatform certain speakers and certain ideas. Freedom of association enables yeah. Twitter mobs to form and to demand that a student be expelled or that a professor be suspended. Um, and so, what we need is instead of a cancel culture, a free speech culture in which people and companies and other powerful entities voluntarily respect freedom of speech, recognizing that it is always a double-edged sword. You know, I wrote a whole book called Hate, Why We we Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship. Why am I advocating resisting? I oppose censoring hate speech. But I want to reduce it because I recognize that one of the adverse consequences of hate speech is that it stifles other people's speech. People who are targeted or reasonably fear that they will be targeted or belong to groups that have been targeted uh, will feel chilled in their exercise of their free speech rights not to mention their freedom of movement. But to show how complicated this all is, Annika, um, counter speech, which is what I, and more importantly, the Supreme Court advocate, you know don't censor the hate speech or other speech you detest, answer it, argue it back, ignore it, uh, try to persuade the speaker to change uh, their views. All of those are forms of constitutionally protected counter speech, but counter speech can go too far if it is so harsh and calls for such isolation and shaming and shunning that it really shuts down not only, you know, the extreme hate mongers, but anybody who is afraid of voicing what might be an unpopular perspective on issues related to race and gender and so forth. So one phrase that we lawyers often use is, Uh, a delicate balance. Our Constitution and our whole legal system requires constant sensitivity. We should robustly and vigorously exercise our free speech rights, but do so responsibly, trying to respect and encourage other people's free speech rights. Uh, Ideally, we would communicate civilly and respectfully, uh, if we can say something in a more courteous, polite manner, we should do so, but we should not do so at the cost of censoring an entire idea or perspective, or worse yet, not even talking about a whole topic, which surveys show people are avoiding mm. saying anything Right about race and gender and so forth for fear of unwittingly saying something that might be deemed to be offensive.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring up that you know almost every country has signed on to some form of you know promoting free speech because as we know, I mean, there are many democracies. It's not just communist dictatorships that don't have free speech protections. Much of Europe doesn't either, in large part because of scars I think left from uh, World War II and the Holocaust. Um, And so, I mean, I wonder. Well, there are a lot of things one could ask about that, but to start off, I mean, we we have kind of on the books laws that are restricting free speech in these places. I mean, what can we say about the empirics of those kinds of laws? Do they work? Are they achieving their uh, proposed result?
1: And in fairness, I would say the you know other Western democracies largely protect free speech. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, they're actually more speech protective than the United States. You want to guess what topic is more taboo in the United States than in, let's say, the Scandinavian countries or Germany? I mean, gen- gender? <laughs> Sex. Sex. The United yeah. States has this puritanical heritage. And. So we still outlaw obscenity and so-called pornography. And, you know, I have a lot of friends in uh, European countries who just laugh at Hmm. the, the censoriousness that Americans have toward even nudity or partial nudity, even in art. Uh, which is just completely uncontroversial in those countries. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are uh, the exceptions in the other direction where the United States is more speech protective uh, tend to be what I believe you were alluding to, yeah. so-called hate speech, including anti-Semitic speech, Holocaust right. cost denial. Um, And also another really important difference is uh, defamation. The United States has the famous New York Times versus Sullivan standard, which Mm -hmm. allows even false defamatory statements about public officials and public figures uh, to go unpunished, except in the extraordinary circumstances where you can show an intentional or reckless disregard of the Mm -hmm. truth. And designedly, our system overprotects false defamatory speech for fear that if we didn't give that extra degree of protection, there would be too much self-censorship by reporters and others who might inadvertently say something Mm -hmm. that, uh, is inaccurate, and we'd rather, you know, when it comes to political speech or speech about public issues or public figures, we'd rather err in favor of you know too much um, harmful speech than too little positive speech. Um, so I, I don't want to exaggerate the differences, but I also would not want to live in a country uh, that make that that a, a arrests people mm. or even making political. Campaign speeches, even political uh, government officials, for staking out positions on really important issues such as immigration or criminal justice, uh, that results in arresting ministers and um, and imams for reading passages from the Bible or the Quran that are deemed to be hateful to women or to uh, LGBTQ people, um, and. Uh, In terms of the effectiveness, Annika, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. Believe me, if I thought that censoring Holocaust denial or Nazi speech would prevent another Holocaust or reduce anti-Semitism, I would be all in favor of it. And by the way, more importantly, the U.S. Supreme Court and international bodies would as well, because Mm -hmm. the universal standard is that... The restriction may be imposed if it can be shown to uh, not only materially promote some important countervailing goal, which certainly reducing hatred in general and anti-Semitism in particular is certainly a compellingly important countervailing goal. But you have to show that the, re- the, me- the, the speech restriction is actually materially, substantially, or materially promotes that goal, that it actually does reduce the hatred or the anti-Semitism, And also that it is the least restrictive means yeah. to do that, that no measure that's consistent with free speech would be as effective. And we have, I'm always open to new evidence and new analysis. But believe me, I've studied everything available throughout history around the world to this day. And there is not even a correlation between the outlawing of hate speech and the reduction of hate of hatred and discrimination and discriminatory violence. And conversely, those laws may well even be counterproductive. Let's use the example. So in the book I wrote about hate speech and it came out in 2018, I quote many human rights activists from all over the world who oppose censoring hate speech. Not at all because it violates the free speech laws in their own country. That's what we're talking about. In their own countries, these laws are allowed. But precisely because they say the laws are at best, ineffective, at worst, counterproductive. And they're distracting us from the more meaningful measures, which include education and information and counter speech. You know, tragically, during the Weimar Republic, when the Nazis rose to power, Mm -hmm. Germany between 1918 and 1933, you know, many people, uh, some of us use the term the Weimar fallacy, I can't tell you how often people uh, will just assert, oh, if only they had outlawed hate speech, including anti-Semitic speech, then Hitler would Mm -hmm. never have power and the Holocaust would never have happened. Well, guess what? There were very strict anti-hate speech laws which were enforced against anti-Semitic speech, which were enforced against Nazi leaders. Hitler himself was banned from public speaking from, wow. for like two years. Uh, the virulently anti-Semitic newspaper, Der Stürmer, was prosecuted about 36 times, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And obviously, these trials, uh, uh, the prosecutions against the Nazis, Uh, did not stop them from engaging in their hateful ideology. To the contrary, uh, many historians concur that the trials served as useful propaganda platforms for the Mm -hmm. Nazis to be able to disseminate their ideas, gain more attention and more support than they had previously received. And the, the real problem in the Weimar Republic, and I see it as a problem today, so again, there's a continuum, thank goodness. I'm not at all analogizing the situation in the United States or anywhere in the world, thank goodness, to Nazi Germany. But it is part of the same spectrum, and so we have to be aware of that. Um, the, 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 the problem was that uh, the Nazis got away with murder, literally. Right physically assaulting and attacking their ideological opponents, communists and socialists and Jews and uh, members of other despised minority groups, and they basically went unpunished. Um, In the United States, um, we have had periods of failure to enforce laws against violence, uh, by southern states and localities during the civil rights movement when uh, opponents of Jim Crow and civil rights advocates would be assaulted and, and even murdered um, and you know attacked by the KKK without any enforcement from the southern officials and even worse that um, a lot of evidence that southern sheriffs and police officers were actually participating in the violence or so complicit. Mm. Movement. So, you know, this is a a really important point. I'm segueing into another topic, if you if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Uh, Because I think in today's very fraught campus environment Mm. and beyond, it is equally important for government not to punish constitutionally protected speech and to punish constitutionally unprotected speech, mm. uh, not to mention constitutionally unprotected violence, and violence is never constitutionally protected. And we have too many reports of both kinds of problems, both of which thwart a meaningful exercise of free speech to which you, you alluded. If people are uh, well, obviously, if they're punished, that's that directly violates the First Amendment in a very dramatic way, and there have been many reports of government and including university punishment of expression um, that is constitutionally protected of various perspectives on these issues. But there have also been distressingly many reports of government and university not punishing physical violence against speakers, as well as unprotected speech, including Expressive conduct that is uh, threatening or harassing or bullying or intimidating. And it may seem paradoxical for a free speech advocate to say government ought to punish and universities ought to discipline students who are engaging in certain kinds of expressive conduct. The reason for that expressive conduct, including menacing, intimidating threats, Um, The reason why it's unprotected is because it violates other people's free speech. They are deterred and chilled, and we've heard reports of students not even wanting to venture out of their dormitory rooms Mm. to go to class or to, uh, you know, participate in extracurricular activities because they're so afraid of being either assaulted or threatened.
0: Yeah, and I really appreciate what you said about the Nazi Germany example, um, both because, I mean, your own story is so powerful, uh, but also because I think there's a tendency to hop right to that as an example. People are like, oh, well, you know, the Nazis did this, or this is the only way to prevent it, and people just don't have the history straight. You know, there's just sort of an assumption that this is how it went down, and people don't really look into it. Um, It can be pretty shocking. I mean, I wonder. As we look at campus politics, um how do you view, I mean, how has this changed, like over the course of your career? I mean, because you have been working in this on this issue for so long, um, including, you know, during a period, I mean, at least in my view, and maybe you'll push back, but there's kind of been a shift from, you know, the left wing was really pro-free speech and now the left wing is really anti. And then there's also been a shift due to kind of technological innovation, um, social media, and just kind of in my experience has really shaped how people feel about free speech because social media can be kind of a free for all. So talk a little bit about
1: those shifts. You know, the uh, French saying, plus ça plus c'est la même chose, right? Yeah, yeah. The more it changes, the more it's the same. Yeah. And I will push back. Thank you for yeah. answering <laughs> this. Yeah. Um, because... It's a common perception, not it, just it, mine. It, it, but it's really the um, the details, that the mm. factual details that have changed, but the issues remain the same. And in many cases, even the factual details... Are the same, um, so uh, yeah. But uh, on the, I first became involved in campus free speech controversies when I was on campus myself, yeah, as a student, Annika, uh, in the late nineteen sixties through the early nineteen seventies, and in many ways, it the climate was very similar to what it has been recently, because there was a very strong left wing uh, embodied among among others in Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, which is a powerful left wing force on campus. And many students were communists and Marxists and socialists of various stripes, I remember the Progressive Labor Party was big on campus, and they were quite hostile toward Mm. free speech. And I remember as a liberal, uh, you know, all these terms are so imprecise, but I would say I have always been a, and I I try to be open-minded and open to different points of view. So it's not that I've, you know, rigidly associated myself with certain first step perspectives and dug my heels in, but I keep re-examining and wrestling with the issues and ending up in the same um, positions, which is a political liberal, which I... I think of as really fairly moderate, maybe slightly to the left of center, but definitely to the right of the progressives, uh, Mm self-identified progressives who are dominant on campus and in elite institutions in society, at least dominant in terms of the weight that they carry and uh, the amount of attention they they demand and, and receive. Uh, Even more importantly, in terms of what I care about, I've always been a classical liberal in terms of uh, believing in freedom of speech and like it basically enlightenment values. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was as unpopular on I I went to Harvard for college and law school. That was a pretty unpopular perspective Mm -hmm among students who were very radical, was another word that they used then, radical, Um, and uh, were really seeking to dismantle current institutions in a very sweeping way, whereas I was critical of particular policies such as the Vietnam War. Others were more interested in dismantling the military industrial complex. Uh, I definitely had many, many clashes with fellow students and even professors on campus who shouted down and tried to de-platform speakers who were from the U.S. military Uh, or from businesses that were producing material that was used in the Vietnam War, uh, or academics or other experts who supported the Vietnam War or weren't quite as critical. So I had many clashes where I was defending free speech, even for perspectives that I personally disagreed with and where that was seen as being antithetical to the larger cause um, so, I have seen a lot of continuity. And I have also seen, even from fellow liberals in the sense of political liberals, throughout my entire career, there have always been liberal supported and democratic supported uh, um, types of uh, efforts to suppress types of speech that mm. they saw as antithetical to their values and you know let me mention about 2 years ago I think I was commissioned by tablet magazine to write a piece about why has the left of which we perceive used to perceive ourselves to be a part why has the left abandoned freedom of speech? And I pushed back. I said, I reject that premise. The the left has never been, including liberals, have never been supportive of freedom of speech. And I marked them through, decade by decade, uh, every example of censorship that the left had supported, starting with um, hate, well, even going back to the ACLU's famous case of defending free speech for the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, in the late 1970s, when Skokie had a large Holocaust survivor population, mm. as well as other Jews, the ACLU itself lost 15% of our members. Wow. Even guard carrying ACLU members said, you know, that's where we draw the line. And I have to emphasize, Annika, that it was an easy case in the courts of law. We were mm. defending, you know, tried and true fundamental First Amendment principles. Yeah. But even that was unpopular with even people, you know, who felt so strongly about free speech and probably by and large liberals uh, within the ACLU. And then we had um, pretty much at the same time, we started maybe a little bit later, started to see the founding of the um movement it, they called themselves radical feminists, but I think included a lot of liberal feminists as well crusading against pornography yeah. um, uh, which they defined as as sexually explicit speech that is demeaning or degrading or dehumanizing to women you know that endangered a huge swath of sexually oriented expression. Um, Including, you know, very important pro-feminist and pro-reproductive freedom expression. And we then had, in the late 1980s, the movement for campus hate speech codes completely coming from the left. Um, in the service of advancing equality of opportunity for members of racial minorities and for women on campus. Um, a little bit later in the early 90s, with uh, we had crusades against violence in media that, again, completely came from liberals in Congress. Uh, oh, and not only violence, but also uh, misogynistic rap mm-hmm. lyrics. That was a campaign that was begun by Tipper Gore, who was then married to Al Gore, you know, was Democratic vice president. Um, So, you know, and today there are many of my liberal friends are saying maybe we ought to outlaw advocacy of genocide or, you know, support for Hamas as a terrorist organization. So uh, quite frankly, for me, the only difference has been Uh, Among liberals and conservatives, um, what speech do they consider so dangerous that they think it should be an exception based short of the emergency standard, right? One of my friends who was the first executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship uh, put it so well her name is Leanne Katz. I like to pay tribute to her. She said, Nadine, everyone has his or her Skokie. The just one exception that they want to make for the speech that they consider the most dangerous. And for conservatives, it's speech that undermines national security or the traditional American family, um, uh, public safety, children's welfare. But you know, for the left, it's speech that undermines their sense of equality or, you know, government policies that, that they consider, that they disfavor. I think it's human nature. It goes back to that old saying of people mostly defending freedom of speech for me, but not for thee.
0: Yeah, I think it's so true. I mean, there are so many people who think of themselves as being strongly in favor of free speech, and then it's something close to their heart, and suddenly it's a whole different conversation. Um, So I know that we're coming to the end of our time here, and I'm endeavoring to end us on a positive note. (laughs) I'm very positive. You
1: You are. Your audience can't see, but you can see I'm smiling all the way through.
0: Yes. Um, But, you know, Sending us forward with, uh, especially given the holiday season, something to be happy about. And I want to talk a little bit about friendship, because I think kind of the common sense take might be, oh, well, if you have freedom of speech, it might make friendship much more difficult because people might say things that would really upset you. Um, or you know, speech might proceed along less polite lines, um, but in fact, you know, there are so many counterexamples to that. At the Madison Program, Robbie George and Cornell West are really front front of mind. But I know you and I have both had friendships that have, if anything, been enabled by free speech. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, about how and why that might be the case, and about how free speech, instead of kind of continuing to divide the country, can actually bring us together.
1: Well, starting at the micro level, I don't understand how you can have a friendship yeah. or any human relationship without candid freedom of speech. Uh, I used to uh, quip that until I had a robust argument and disagreement with somebody, I couldn't really consider them a friend mm. because it's, so, it's more superficial. No two thinking human beings. Yeah. No matter how much we may share in many ways, we can't possibly agree on every issue that we strongly feel about, that we have strong feelings about. So by definition, that means there are at least some issues where we strongly disagree with everyone else. And if we self-censor because we fear that that's going to jeopardize the friendship, then I would say that's not a friendship or a meaningful friendship in the first place. And hopefully, and and when you have those disagreements against a background of a really positive Mm -hmm. relationship, then you have a degree of trust um, that makes you not reject the entire person, even if you think they're wrong. In fact, one of my dear friends recently accused me of having a view that he thought was positively evil. Uh, But I know that He's not treating me as an evil person, uh, which is what unfortunately we see does happen in the sphere of more superficial public relationships, right? People will dismiss those they don't know. Uh, as not only wrong uh, and not only evil on that particular idea, but evil persons to, to be shunned in general. And I think that we, it is so important if we are going to build new friendships and new relationships that um, we should have that basic level of trust. And it's, it goes into our, it's reflected in our system of, of law and government as a presumption of innocence, and I think that's reflected in many religions and in humanist philosophy as well. You know, a basic assumption of goodness and good faith and, and you know, then a willingness to listen. If an idea, a particular idea strikes you as wrong or even evil, you know, engage with the person. Why do they believe that? What experience have they had? That has led them to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that might enter into the consideration that would change their mind? Um, and and all said in the spirit, not necessarily of um, changing somebody else's mind, but also being open to changing up, changing your own mind, uh, and recognizing that even if your whole you don't 180 degrees change your perspective, you may have increased appreciation for the other person's perspective. You may understand that uh, it can flow not from being evil, uh, but from uh, you know different set of experiences and priorities. And I think it's also really valuable beyond giving that presumption of uh, the doubt and a and, and humility about how much you can learn and be enriched by every conversation, especially those that add to your pre-existing store of knowledge and perspectives. By definition, that's enriching, uh, not just repetitive. Um, I think there's something really valuable about affirmatively seeking out somebody that you know has different perspectives yeah. um, precisely to expand your mind. I have done that throughout my life and career, and both are important because uh, the ACLU always collaborated with anybody and any organization and any official, no matter how strongly we may have disagreed on issues that were really important to all of us, if we concluded that collaborating on an issue where we strongly agreed yeah. would be mutually beneficial to our cause. And the answer was usually yes. Then we would put aside our other differences and work together very collaboratively and enthusiastically and to great gain, you know, that doors would, we would each open doors for the other that could not have been opened alone and jointly accomplish something that could not have been accomplished alone. And through that experience, I came to have personal Relationships and friendships with individuals that I found just very, very enriching on an individual level. Um, to get to relate to somebody as a as a whole human being, mm. not just reduced to you know, what they believe, uh, because right. all of us have other aspects to our personalities other than what we believe. We have hobbies, we have interests, we have, you know, sports. And, uh, oh, boy, that's a big bond. bond <laughs> for a people, right? Um, but um, there's something uh, so joyous about expanding your circle of friendship beyond those that you belong to the same organizations with.
0: To all the people out there who are pro-free speech, unless someone is rooting against the Philadelphia Eagles, let, let that be a lesson you. <laughs> but thank you so much, Nadine. This has been just an amazing conversation and you have such an incredible breadth and depth of experience. So we've all really benefited from being able to listen to you today.
1: Well, thank you so much, Annika. And if I may ask you at some point, I know you're very busy. um, If you could send me a link to one or two of the linguistic studies you mentioned, I would be absolutely fascinated uh, because I haven't done any research or reading. I've just taken it, you know, it just seems to make. Common sense. Uh, and in fairness, uh, not only did was Orwell very persuasive yeah. without any footnotes, but <laughs> the US Supreme Court in a very yeah. famous decision, do you know, Cohen versus California, um, which involved the F word, which back then mm. in 1971 was at least as offensive as the racial epithet is today. Seriously. Wow. We, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court banned, they told the ACLU lawyer not to use the word in court. Um, ACLU lawyer fired him, which was strategically very wise. But the Supreme Court opinion is actually written without mentioning the word. Wow. Um, they, <laughs> so taboo. You right. can imagine it. And yet the Supreme Court upheld the right to say it in the phrase the draft. Um, And it reject, expressly rejected an argument that, well, you know, he can make the point that he opposes the draft um, without uh, using that word that's so offensive. And the Supreme Court just said without footnotes, but conclusively, make no mistake about it. By banning a particular word, you are banning a specific idea. But so. Like they too were asserting it as if, well, that's just common sense. We don't need to have any studies that, that back that up. So I'm fascinated with yeah. our studies and I would be so grateful if you could, you know, point me in the direction of one or two and then I could take it from there myself.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, so the reason that it, well, it was relevant, so because I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Greek religion. And so the Greeks have no word for religion. The word is invented by the Romans. And so it became relevant for my project. But yeah, there there are also studies about it. I mean, colors are kind of an easy way to do it. But yeah, I'm very happy to pass those along. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, there you have it, Madisonians, to Dean Strawson on freedom of speech. Both of her recent books and her three-hour documentary series are linked in the show notes. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, first, like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps us so much. You can also find out more about the Madison program and everything that we do here on Princeton's campus at jmp.princeton.edu. There, you can find recordings of all of our lectures that we host and our schedule of future events, and you can sign up for our mailing list. You can also follow us on social media on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a wonderful holiday season, and I'm so excited to catch you next time on the other side of Christmas here on Madison's Notes.